Matthew 28, verse 11. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for this, your written word. We thank you for Matthew, who wrote it so many years ago, giving us an accurate account of what actually happened. And may we leave here knowing not only that we have met with each other, but that we have met with you, the living God. And all of God's people said, Amen. And Jesus is alive. My master, Jesus, is alive. I'm much older now as I recall for you about this Jesus. I remember the day that he called me to follow him. I'd heard about him, of course. The religious leaders were talking about him as were the general population. People coming to my tax booth to pay their taxes and telling me all about this man called Jesus telling me how he was doing all sorts of healings and wonders and miracles. And then one day Jesus came to me, Levi, son of Alphaeus. I was sitting in my booth collecting taxes and he called me personally to follow him. People despised me and hated me as a tax collector. They looked down upon me as they considered me a collaborator with the occupying Romans. And some of my fellow tax collectors even fleeced our unsuspecting customers. Not that the tax men today ever do that sort of thing, do they? We had the authority to do so. Why not? Then Jesus called me. Me, Levi, called me to follow him with an authority that was far greater than my own or any other authority that I had experienced greater than the authority of the Roman occupying forces, those horrible Romans. What did they ever do for us? Jesus saw potential in me and called me authoritatively to come and follow him. So I got up and started following him. I stopped collecting taxes for the Romans and started my new life. And what is a new life without a party to celebrate? I held a great banquet at my house for Jesus, which of course got right up the noses of the religious establishment, didn't it? Good. Jesus also changed my name from Levi to Matthew. With authority. It's almost three years since that time now. I and his other close disciples have learnt from this Jesus. He encouraged, comforted, rebuked, challenged, guided and taught us. He loved us 
we love him. We had placed a hope in him as the long-awaited for Messiah who would kick out the Romans and lead Israel into a glorious future. The Messiah was the expected one who would come and lead Israel out of their state of subjection to Rome and into the full enjoyment of their own land. How wrong we were, though. We had placed our hope in Jesus Messiah. There was his joyful entry into that great city of Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, and we celebrated him as a triumphant king, didn't we? Then it all seemed to go wrong. After that joyful entry into Jerusalem, Jesus our master was found guilty at the mockery of the trial and was crucified. Dead. And even though he told us that he would rise again from the dead, we didn't believe it. But it's true. Now he's alive again. He really is alive again, you know. The religious authorities even tried to say we'd stolen the body from the tomb. How ridiculous. These religious authorities bribed the Roman guards to say his disciples came in the night and stole the body while we were sleeping. Of course that's ridiculous. Beyond ridiculous. They hadn't really thought it through, had they? I mean, can you spot the immediate logical inconsistency? If the guards were awake, why would they let us steal the body of Jesus? They'd run us through with their spears, wouldn't they? If the guards were asleep, how did they know for certain that it was us that stole the body? Beyond ridiculous. Because we were cowering in fear that we would be next to have such a death. Some women were brave though and had gone to see his body for themselves. They were the first witnesses. Some of us had afterwards had gone back to the life we had before we met Jesus. And then Jesus gathered us all together and we received some final words of command from him before he ascended back to the Father. We would keep following him. We were to go make disciples of others. We were to baptize them and teach them all that Jesus had taught us. What an amazing opportunity given to us by God. Not to make mere converts, but lifelong disciples and followers of Jesus. What a privilege and an honor. This collection of my memories about Jesus is complete now. I, Matthew, present Jesus to you. By presenting to you as the long-waited-for Messiah, predicted over the centuries gone by. I've also recorded here Israel's attitude towards this Jesus as the Messiah. I, Matthew, a Jew, started out giving you Jesus' genealogy and proceeded to tell you all about Jesus' authority and authentication as this Messiah. I related to you about Israel's opposition to and rejection of Jesus being the Messiah. And this caused Jesus to reject Israel due to her unbelief. Now finally, I have recorded the death and resurrection of the Christ with Jesus' final command for us to go. Go, make disciples, wherever we go and whatever we're doing, baptizing them, teaching them, and seeing that they also go and do the same. I love my Jesus, 
and I know that he loves me. Do you love him? I can tell you with undoubted assuredness and certainty that he loves you. Well, that was Matthew. And I'm pretty sure that last Sunday, Easter Sunday, you looked at the resurrection of Jesus. Therefore, we won't go into too much more detail about it. However, we will look briefly at it together now before going on to what I think are the key verses of Matthew's Gospel. And in our first reading, did you notice an example of the supreme irony of God exhibited? The first human witnesses of Jesus' resurrection were women. God's sense of humour at work. Not because of the women were particularly funny, though they may have been. At the time, women couldn't be witnesses in the law courts or religious courts. Their testimonies would ordinarily be discounted by humans. But God intervenes and shows these women their true worth as his first spokespeople of Jesus rising from the dead. The men were all cowering in fear. Bunch of whips. Perhaps that's the Australian in the Almost as good as the English cricket team. <laughs> the resurrection of Jesus Christ provided the central theme for the sermons and teaching in the early church. We can easily see that the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ proved and vindicated all of Jesus' teachings and his claims to be the long-awaited for and promised Messiah, the suffering servant, and attested to his being simultaneously fully God the human and the last judge of mankind, of all humanity, times gone past and times in the future. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ declared God's approval of his obedient service and the fulfilment of all the Old Testament promises, resulting in forgiveness of sins and salvation being found only in and through Jesus Christ, God's Son, which was the prime motivation for evangelism in the early church. Was it not? You only have to read the book of Acts to start finding out that. And the combination of Jesus Christ's death on the cross and his subsequent resurrection from the death to new life results in forgiveness and sins and salvation being only found in and through Jesus Christ, God's Son. Again, that was the prime motivation for evangelism in the early church. And Jesus' resurrection is a sign of a bodily resurrection for all believers in him which should give us a new attitude towards death and transforming our hopes. I can't wait for the new body. The troubles I have with this one. More about that later. And as the resurrected king, Jesus now intercedes for us and has perfected the redemption of all those who choose to follow him. He really is alive, you know. And finally, the cross and resurrection ensure victory over Satan, sin and death. They are conquered and defeated foes. Satan, or old hairy legs as I call him, is a defeated creature. He will do anything to drag people into defeat with him. The power of sin is conquered and sin's grip on humanity is overcome if you're a believer in Jesus. Death has been beaten, 
because those who believe and trust in Jesus Christ will live forever with him. That is not the end or the beginning. And if Jesus Christ did not physically rise from the dead, we as Christians are the product of the greatest delusion of history and we are the most foolish of all people. Have you availed yourself of this Jesus who has conquered sin and death by rising from the dead? Jesus is waiting for you to approach him and avail yourself of God's love and blessing for you. What's stopping you? Matthew 28 and verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we've seen, Jesus has been raised from the dead into new life. What happened next? His disciples, as we read, gathered together on a mountain in Galilee. Some worshipped and some doubted. Matthew is very honest in his dealings and testimony about Jesus and his disciples. Those who doubted, however, did not doubt for very long, as history tells us. Before Jesus ascended back to the Father, he issued this commandment to his disciples. And they will do as Jesus commanded, go and tell the world about this Jesus, and teach them to be his disciples. And the evidence of that is sitting here today. Some 2,000 years later, we are the products of their obedience, aren't we? And one of the major themes of Matthew's Gospel is the authority of Jesus. Matthew highlights Jesus' authority in action, and not just merely in words. Matthew records Jesus' authority to forgive sins. Jesus also imparted authority to his disciples for a short time when they went on a mission in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus has authority over all things and all people. Jesus has authority over all spiritual beings, whether angels or demons as well as over all nations, governments, rulers, and over all earthly and spiritual authorities. Jesus has the authority. Is that the Jesus you know? And one of the consequences of Easter is that Jesus' authority is passed to his disciples. The disciples could be obedient to God without fear of retribution from those who would seek to harm them. 
regardless of the circumstances they would find themselves in. That is why they were so bold and why the church grew quickly. It spread from that mountain outwards. That was the work of the Holy Spirit who changed them from living in fear, remember, to living out their faith boldly. They had great confidence in their God, knowing that through Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus had conquered all their enemies. And if Jesus had not risen from the dead physically, then the disciples would not have had a story to tell, would they? They'd be still cowering in that upper room. Bunch of wimps. But Jesus had risen from the dead, and the early church exploded numerically as the twelve disciples exercised Jesus' authority and his power. And what about the church today, some 2,000 years on from this time of Matthew? Christianity is a faith whereby all Christian disciples are to tell others of the goodness of God and what Jesus has done for them. It's an act of obedience. Jesus' whole mission was one of calling people back into relationship and life with God and in God. And as followers of Jesus Christ, all Christian disciples are to show and tell of God's message of reconciliation to all people of all time and in all manner of ways. It's not first forcing people to adopt church standards as the church has done down through time. That's one barrier that as I talk to people, people bring up time and time again as we go into history. And nor is it simply a message of join the church as a symbol of your good works and your community. And a further question, why do we evangelize? Why do we tell others about this Jesus? And the prime motivation for evangelism, for telling other people outside of here about Jesus, is out of gratitude for what God has done for each of us. In that we love God because first he loved us, didn't he? the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. It's telling and showing others about Jesus. It's also an act of obedience to God. We're not all called to be evangelists like Billy Graham or John Stott. But we are all called to make disciples of Jesus Christ, aren't we? Matthew 28 verses 18 and 20 It's either true for us or it's not. And in all manner of ways. And making disciples is not just evangelism, but ensuring that guidance and care is given to new disciples of Jesus Christ. It's getting down and helping people at their point of need. Needs in all aspects of the world. And how is this achieved? How can the Christian disciple exhibit Jesus' authority and power in evangelism? Well, that's part of the role of the Holy Spirit whom Jesus said would come once he had ascended back to the right hand of the Father. And if you're a Christian, you also have the same Holy Spirit living within you as the disciples did. And today, or at least I am, we're shouted down if we dare explain that Jesus is Lord and that he is the only way to God, the only acceptable path to God. That's particularly the case if a person lives in a country which worships other gods or is under tight control of those who do not believe in any God. 
In the West, we are told that Jesus is not significant of it anymore. There's no relevance to me. We're told that there are no such things as moral absolutes. And what's right for you may not be right for me. And providing I'm not hurting anybody, well, you just stay out of my business, will you? Perhaps it's just me who gets told things like that. And today, people people cynically laugh at us and say we worship a dead man. We're often called fools for believing in a God. The world out there says that if you want to get ahead in life, you need to be strong. Show some backbone and don't you ever dare back down to anybody or anything. Certainly never admit that you were wrong or anything that you made mistakes. Dear, oh dear, making mistakes. And the way of the cross, the way of the gospel of God, this message that we have, is to kneel before the cross of Jesus Christ, admit your mistakes and sins, be prepared to serve God and others and take up your own cross. And that lifestyle is directly antagonistic to our culture. And I'm compelled to ask, how have you responded to this love of Jesus Christ to you and for you? So what can we say as we conclude? Jesus is still alive and because he lives, he still meets with people today. Jesus walks with us wherever we go and particularly in the darkest periods of our life. Jesus speaks whenever the Bible is faithfully preached and read from. Jesus meets his followers in the Holy Communion with the bread and the wine. And as God's people, as Christian disciples in the 21st century, we are commanded to go and tell other people about God and the good news from God. As we saw here today, that was Jesus' command to his disciples before he ascended to the right hand of the Father. I know we do that as a church, but are we doing it also as individuals? Growing up in Australia, I was raised by my parents to think that churches are dangerous people and Christians were brainwashed, mindless idiots. And I thank God for a lady called Karen. We were firstly at primary school together, then later we were at high school together back in Australia. And she is the one who first invited me to her church. I thought, if churches are so dangerous, let's go for a bit of danger. Besides, she's pretty. And it was there for the first time I heard that there is a God, that this God loved me, and that this God had done all that he could do to get me to be in an active, dynamic, and intimate, personal relationship with him. And I said, yes. I just needed to accept it and go running into his arms. And I did just that about 36 years ago now. And in that time I've died twice. Once was from a stroke in 2003, when instead of snoring, my, when, my, when young me came up to go to sleep, I was, instead of snoring, I was gurgling. She thought something was wrong, so she phoned 999, and I'd had a stroke. My job was moving north from London, and I three times I said yes, but he obviously didn't check with God because he gave me a clip around the ears and says, Oi, I've got something else for you to do. 
The way he deals with me may not be the way he deals with you, by the way, because I'm a bit sick. And then in 2007, after graduating from, the week before graduating from Moreland's, which is where I went after the stroke, I went to the doctors feeling a bit iffy, and I collapsed while I was in with the GP. It was in, 2000, in July 2007. And while I was collapsed and in a state of unconsciousness, I directly said to the father, Dad, I want to come home now. And he said, No, I've got a job for you to do. Get up. So I got up. The paramedics almost fainted because they said, I'm not supposed to be sitting up. And I said, Well, tough. <laughs> well, I'm Australian. And they were English. So they carted me off down to hospital and they found that I had some hairs in my leg had turned inwards and caused blood poisoning. So that's why I call Satan old hairy legs. It's also an insult in Australia. And so that's what we've been doing ever since. Doing what God wants us to do. And a growing number of people we try to talk to about God say something similar to this. Who is this God you speak of? I know no God. There is no God. And while they may not explicitly say that these people are not God, implicitly they are saying it. Is it just me who encounters people like that? And when they say that, are we polite and go back to the Lord and talk to him about these people, hanging them over to the Lord? Sometimes I've been known to say something along those lines to those sort of people. Well, mate, if you're right that there is no God and I'm wrong, then you'll be okay and I'll be okay because there'll be nothing after this. You'll have lived the life you wanted to live and you know what? So will I. But if you're wrong and I'm right and that there is a loving God who created us, what then? That this God has done everything possible for you to be in an active living, dynamic, and intimate relationship with him, then after our inevitable death, you will have lost everything, and I have gained everything. Are you sure you don't want to hear again about this God who loves you? Will there be one other person in heaven because of what you've said to them about Jesus? Heaven's a great big place. There will be plenty of room. God has prepared a place for all those who love him and wants to lavish his love upon us. He may even let me in again. We know he loves us now, but it's only in part. And when we are with him eternally, we shall continue to explore that great love, to explore that intimacy. God is with us now in spirit, but then we shall be with him physically taking your face in his hands and wiping away your tears. Wiping away your tears of sorrow and wiping away your tears of joy. If that doesn't cause you to go, wow, nothing will. Heaven's a prepared place of extraordinary beauty. When was the last time that you or I told somebody about heaven and how to get there. As for today, there's plenty of space here in the church, for people outside of here to come and hear the good news about God. 
Thank God for the church here and for the work it's doing. As Christians, we are to be Jesus Christ's witnesses in Boston and wherever we go. Boston's got its problems. They're very visual to us. But every situation and every community has problems. Most of the time they're hidden. And witnessing about Jesus is communicating our experience of God and the truth in the Bible. It's communicating not just with words, but with our actions and our lifestyle as well. It's as the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. And if people don't hear our words as gracious or our actions as godly, then why would people ask us for the reason for the hope that we have? We are to continually familiarise ourselves with the written word of the Bible, asking the Holy Spirit to help us. Our courage should come from him being mindful of how God could use us. If 12 men can turn the world upside down, then 12 people here could turn Boston upside down, couldn't they? Or am I wrong? And one thing that Matthew and the other disciples learnt was obedience to Jesus. They didn't always get it right. I'm sure Jesus called them cloth ears occasionally. But they persevered. How similar are they to us today in that regard? Matthew and the other disciples persevered so much that we as the church today are part of the product of their obedience to Jesus. He was their Lord and they acted as if he was their Lord. They also learnt a second word which is born from obedience. And that's the word intimacy. It's a word that I know scares most men. How is your intimacy with God? And what do I mean by intimacy in this context? To be a Christian, that is a Christian disciple, somebody who is a follower of Jesus Christ, is to be in a dynamic, intimate relationship with God. It's a development of intimacy between Almighty God and our individual selves. It's going on with life, developing that relationship and refining that unique God between God and the individual person. Personally, to know that God desires for me to know him more and more is of great encouragement to me. I have memory problems due to that stroke, but I've never forgotten that. developing and maturing intimacy between God and ourselves. Could that same be said of you? And we develop our intimacy with God through prayer, both speaking and in listening. And the major way we can hear God speak is through the Bible. That's why prayer and reading the Bible go hand in hand. How's your prayer life and your reading of the Bible? It's my desire that I will continue going on in life, developing my intimacy with God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. 
talking to him throughout the day, not just in the morning or the evening for a short time. I also desire that each person I meet will either start that relationship with God or go on developing that relationship with God. Developing an intimacy with God, an intimacy born from obedience to God. Intimacy born from obedience and discipleship of Jesus Christ go hand in hand with each other. So let's go from here, prepared to be obedient to God in all facets of life, telling and showing others about him, and being willing to make disciples wherever we go and whatever we're doing. You don't need to go to another country to do that. You can do it with your words, your actions, the way you live, the way you respond to people, the way you communicate with the customer services assistants and Sainsbury's as you're paying for your goods. You can do it in the sovereign centre as you're shopping. You can do it in your office at work. You can do it at your school, so you kids can't get out of it either. You can do it on Facebook or anywhere else on the internet. Do other people know you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ? I went to the physio recently, just up the road, and somehow the guy knew I was a Christian. Maybe my halo was shiny that day or something, <laughs> if not a little bit bent. Because he happened to be a Christian as well. Let's go ourselves from here, making ourselves available to God, to go make disciples and continue developing our intimate relationship with God. We're not left to our own devices and strength to do it. If we do it that way, we'll fail. God has given us his Holy Spirit to live within us, help us, empower us, comfort Joelus, that's his boundless strength and power which we can avail ourselves on of in order to see Jesus Christ reign in Boston. God loves Boston, doesn't he? So let's go show Boston the love of God. Let's give the people of Boston and elsewhere a reason to ask us about our God and the hope we have in him. There's a discipleship course starting next month here. Why not join us and invite others to join us? And finally, if you're not yet a disciple of Jesus, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, then I know Roy would love to talk to you afterwards. Please don't leave this building without talking to somebody else about how you can become a Christian, a follower, a disciple of Jesus. Let's pray. Oh God our Father, we thank you for Matthew, the other disciples and the writers of the Bible. We give testimony about your son Jesus. We thank you for your son Jesus, Father. Thank you for his life, his death, his resurrection and ascension. And we thank you also for the Holy Spirit who was sent to live within all those who are your people. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who is a symbol of our unity. Because of him, we may be individuals, but we are united as a group of people who love you here in Boston. Help us to go from here, Father, to tell one other person today about
about Jesus and how they can have a, a loving, personal, dynamic, and intimate relationship with you. But they need to take that first step. Because while your love compels, it does not force. Help us, O God, in our weakness. Because then we are strong. I ask this, Father, through the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, who lives within us, unites us, unifies us, and makes us one. Amen. Amen.